All right, so what I wanted to do today is uh, kind of continue this theme of talking uh, about Enlightenment religion, how it's misused the Bible, and uh, in terms specifically of this idea of equality, um, equity, uh, justice, the fatherhood of God. We looked at a little bit of that uh, through the image and how that kind of gets into the church through the image of God concept uh, that is largely adopted uh, from uh, from Greek ideas of humanity, and then where you know, that commonality is we're brought together in that sense as uh, being connected to God in some sort of holy way. And so you get people like you know uh, you know AOC talking about how all people are sacred and whatnot. That that sort of idea coming from the image of God idea. Well, the other idea that Harnack had, and and from his phrase, uh, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, is in fact then the brotherhood of man, and that concept comes in. Uh, through the idea that everyone is your neighbor. And so this is what you'll hear over and over again. This has been said just constantly. It's drilled into our minds from birth. You hear it everywhere. It's not just in the church. It's outside the church. Everyone's your neighbor. The Bible's quoted, love your neighbor as yourself, and that means everybody. Uh, what we're going to look at today, and, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, test that hypothesis to see if it actually is everybody, by looking at the Bible and seeing what the Bible's actually saying. Because we may, in fact, have been taking the Bible out of context. Now, there's a lot of places where we've done that, and we tend to think the Bible says something that it doesn't. I guarantee that the vast majority of people think the Bible says something like, you know, a lion's going to lay down with the lamb. When, in fact, it doesn't say that at all. It actually says the, lion, the, uh, or, sorry, the wolf is going to lay down with the lamb. But people kind of have this Mandela effect type thing to where they think the Bible teaches one thing that it actually doesn't teach. Now, of course, in that case, you know, the concept is the same, but it, it's not quite how they remember it. And they're so sure that it says lion laying down with the lamb when in fact it doesn't say that. In the same way, people are so sure that the neighbor refers to everybody in the Bible and, uh, and uh, they, they bring up the Good Samaritan, which we'll look today, look at today. And think somehow that they remember that parable correctly, when in fact I think that for the most part they don't remember it correctly, and they've mixed it up and they've misunderstood it. So anyway, we'll look at all that uh, in a moment, but uh, right now let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that as we endeavor to look at these issues, you will open the hearts and minds of your people, uh, help them to be corrected in things that they hold dearly even. Uh, but I, of course, I'm going to argue that they hold it dearly because there is an enlightenment religion that has brainwashed them to think a certain way and not, uh, not necessarily getting the ideas that they have from the Bible. And so I pray that we look anew at the Bible so that we can be corrected in our false religions, uh, help us understand what we're to do then in the world and what the Bible actually requires of us and to whom we are to truly show our love, the love that you've given to us, your love that you have for your people, uh, also then poured out into our hearts. Uh, that we might not simply generically say, yes, we're to love all humanity, but actually to really love, to choose some over others as love is, as we looked at last week, um, for your glory and uh, for the salvation of your people. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I've said before, I think the Enlightenment religion uh, starts with the idea that we all want to basically be included and that all humanity is kind of equal in some sense or it should have a say in some sense. And it develops a lot out of the wars of religion, what are called the wars of religion. In reality, I've argued before that they should be called the wars of the Enlightenment because it was really that Enlightenment idea that everybody needs their say and everybody has to have political power in order to do that and whatnot, that eventually led to a lot of these wars. Uh, they're just religious because they're divided along the lines of, of different religions. But in reality, that's not what causes them. There's nothing in Christianity that says, yeah, go, go knife you know, a, a, another Christian or something if they don't you know, have your, your same confession. Um, so that it kind of bore out of those ideas that basically we, we, what causes the war is this concept was that religion causes all this war. And you get this idea even to today. Now, studies have been done to show that this is absolutely not true. The vast majority of wars throughout history 
have been caused by, you know, people wanting money and land and uh, different honor disputes and things like that. And, and very few, very few have been of the nature of, of a- actually just disagreeing in, in terms of religion. Um, you know, people point to the Crusades or something, and even that is kind of iffy. Uh, you know, so ultimately, this idea, though, that, that this, this uh, idea that pervades the mind, I think, of the Enlightenment thinker, ultimately leads to the idea that what's the solution? Well, the solution is, let's not divide. Let's see each other as a common humanity, Let's see religion as simply different expressions, different religions as different expressions of everyone having this intuition about God and all that sort of thing, that everyone's really connected to God in a certain way. That's why I said last time when talking about uh, the image of God, uh, that this is how the, the fatherhood of God and the uniqueness of mankind and his connection to God is brought in through the image Likewise, all of us being one humanity is very important for Enlightenment religion. And so one humanity, the brotherhood of humanity, is very important. That idea comes in through the neighbor idea in evangelicalism. So you will have evangelicals make statements that frankly are completely unbiblical. Uh, That, you know, not everyone's your brother. So they're trying to fight against that idea explicitly with the terminology brother, but then they'll turn around and basically say the exact same thing by saying everybody's your neighbor, which means your obligations are to everyone. So whenever it says love your neighbor, and if you look at love your neighbor, love your neighbor is identical to loving your brother in scripture. The obligations you have to your brother in scripture are the obligations you have to your neighbor. And so to say everyone's your neighbor is essentially saying that everyone's your brother. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at the, the number one uh, objection I get when I say, look, everybody's not your neighbor in Scripture. And we'll define neighbor in a moment. Let the, we'll let the Bible define neighbor um, rather than just make up our own. Uh, but but what, the, what, um, what we'll look at is, is the objection that I, I constantly get is, is the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, everyone thinks that parable teaches you should help anyone out in need because anyone in need is your neighbor. Um, Let's look at that. Now, there are different uh, reconstructions of the the parable as well, and people get different ideas, but I want to show you that that's not true. Let's start going through the parable, and then we'll also go to the uh, Leviticus passage to show some things. But um, let's start reading the parable. It, It only appears in one place. It's in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? So what's your interpretation? What do you think it, it, it means? Or, or you know, what, what's the ultimate uh, law? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now I want you to notice he's quoting the law. This is very important. He is not saying, hey, here's a new law. Let's just uh, apply this to people in, in general. He's, he's quoting the passage in Leviticus 19. So in order to understand what neighbor means, first and foremost, we need to go to Leviticus 19. It doesn't really matter that the term neighbor can be used different ways. Like the word rea can be used to refer to a friend. It, can, it literally just means someone who's near you in, in that sense. Uh, it, that's the, the basic, like unmarked meaning of the term. But then we have to go to scriptural passages and understand that, okay, when the Bible talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, is that just talking about someone who's physically near you? Is it talking about someone who's like your buddy? And so, you know, if you don't like someone in the covenant community, it's okay to hate them. Uh, Is it talking about all humanity? And so it's very important to answer these questions. Otherwise, you're going to have this generic view of the neighbor. So Leviticus 19.11, I want you to notice this. Uh, You must not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not deal falsely with your fellow citizen. 
Uh, literally, it's the it's uh, ish. So a man, ba'o mi ba'o mi toe. I'm gonna like uh, cough that up because uh, I don't have the vowels here. I have to remember them in my head as I'm actually like reading it. Um, so a man among your people. Very important. So let's get the context. 1911, you must not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not deal falsely with your, a man among your people. So anyone who is among your people. Verse 12, you must not swear falsely in my name so that you do not profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You must not oppress Reka, your neighbor. So there's the neighbor. Or commit robbery against your neighbor. You must not withhold the wages of a hired laborer overnight until morning. You must not curse a deaf person or put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. You must fear your God, I am Yahweh. You must deal you must not deal unjustly in judgment. You must neither show partiality to the poor nor honor the rich. You must judge your fellow citizen. That's the uh, uh, Amitka again. Uh, you must not go about as a slanderer among your people. So, Ba'amika, among your people. Uh, you must not stand idly by when Reka, your neighbor, his life is at stake. So notice, among your people and then your neighbor. Your neighbor is synonymous with your people. Um, verse 17, you must not hate Ahika, your brother, in your heart. So that is in your mind. In other words, you secretly hate him. Uh, remember, that's not just malicious. That's just, as we talked about last week, you're, you're choosing not to actually like take care of him and whatnot. You must surely reprove Amika, your, someone among your people. Uh, your fellow citizen, so that you do not incur sin on account of him. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against, and this is the son of your people, Amka. Um, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now I want you to notice then those among your people those who are your brothers, uh, they are your neighbors. So what does it mean by having a person who's near you? What, do, what does that mean? Well, it means, obviously in the context, your people, your brother, those who are equally in the covenant of Yahweh with you. These are laws given to how you treat fellow covenant members. In other words, in the Old Testament, fellow Israelites, then fellow Jews, and in the New Testament, fellow Christians. So your neighbor is a fellow Christian, someone within the covenant community. And of course, in the time of Jesus, it's also Jews in the covenant community because, you know, they're not called Christians when he comes right away and he's talking to the Jews. But the idea is those who belong to the covenant community. So in the Gospels, for instance, the Jews are going to be used as an example of those in the covenant community and whether or not they truly evidence that they are people of the covenant community by how they treat one another. So with that understanding, we understand then that the law is talking about fellow covenant members, and the law that the man just quoted is that the highest of the laws is to love the Lord your God with everything that you've got, and to love your fellow covenant member. Now, because the word can be used to talk about someone who's just near— the man wants to justify himself because you can also use Rhea as someone who is a friend. And so he probably thinks, well, yeah, I do good to all my friends. And Jesus is trying to say, it's not just your friends. It's anyone in the covenant, anyone who is a fellow believer in Yahweh, uh, who is your neighbor ultimately. But he's actually going to teach him a lesson on how to be a neighbor. Uh, because that's what he needs to be concerned about. And that's, that's the context of Luke we'll talk about in a minute. So verse 29, in back, back to Luke chapter 10, verse 29, but the expert wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, I want you to notice, this is really important, and people miss this with the parable. It's a Levite and a priest, the two most spiritual people in the covenant community. This man is obviously a fellow Jew. In fact, that's always Luke's. Luke, Luke is always talking to a fellow Jew and how a fellow Jew is treated. In other words, a fellow covenant member. So he's already assumed to be a neighbor. The, the question that Jesus is going to flip on the expert in the law is whether you're a neighbor, whether you're a neighbor to the neighbor. That's what you need to be concerned about. Um, but I want you to notice that this is a Jew because obviously the, the Levite and the priest passing by is meant for shock value. They're, they're not helping a fellow Jew. It's not really a surprise if the guy's a Gentile and they're not helping the Gentile. It's no big deal. We also know he's a Jew because he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's traveling on foot. Uh, on his own, uh, that's not a Roman centurion who would be the only other Gentiles or what have you. And merchants traveled with, you know, multiple people. They weren't, like, traveling on their own. It's actually not a smart thing to travel on your own uh, in Israel this time. So anyway, the, the idea then is that these are uh, the most spiritual people, thought to be the most spiritual people in the covenant community. Then verse 33 but a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Now, just as a side note, I want you to notice that love for the neighbor has to do with taking care of the whole need. He doesn't just, like, throw a water bottle at the guy. Like, it's actually, like, fully, like, you know, bandages up his wounds, pulls, pours olive oil and wine, which are expensive on the wounds, to take care of them and dress them, puts them up on his animal. So he's probably walking, and then he's, like, you know, carrying the guy along. Takes, takes him to the inn and takes care of him there. And then when he has to leave, make sure he makes sure and he pays extra so that the innkeeper takes care of him afterward. So this is not just some, some you know small gesture or something. It's actually taking care of the actual need. <clears throat> but I want you to notice here, this is where people are like, well, see, the Samaritan, he's a pagan. Uh, he's, he's just taking care of the guy. And, and so, I mean then that shows that everybody's your neighbor. It could be anybody. Anybody could be your neighbor. And it's like, well, no. The Samaritans believe in Yahweh. The, the, the issue between the Jews and the Samaritans are not that the Jews hate the Samaritans because they have a completely different religion and worship a different god. They hate them because they're ethnically considered unclean, because they are both Gentile and Jew together. But they are in the covenant community in the sense that they are worshipers of Yahweh. And so Jesus heals Jews, and he also heals Samaritans, if you remember. In fact, it's the Samaritan that turns back uh, out of the ten lepers, if you remember, who, who thanks Jesus as opposed to the, the other Jews who don't. So they are, he's a worshiper of Yahweh. He's a believer. Um, and he turns to him to take care of him. Yeah, even though, you know, it's a, a great expense to himself. Now, I want you to notice, and this is, I think, really important and missed, is that Jesus isn't saying the man who's injured is the neighbor. That's already assumed in the parable. It's already assumed that he is a fellow covenant member. What he's going to ask the expert is this, and this is where I, I want to even look at the Greek in, in verse 36. Because I just want to draw this out. This is very important. Verse 36. Tis tu ton, ton trion. Placeon. Okay, dake, soe, I mean, we can go on. Gaganenai. Uh, Gaganenai, uh, sorry. I mispronounced the uh, article there. Um, Tis means which. It's a singular so it's which one? 
Tutone tone trion is a genitive of these three. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want you to focus on the fact that you have been lied to your whole life, and you may not have gotten it. Let me just draw it out real quick. Jesus says, which one of these three, which one out of the three, these three, became a neighbor to the man? He doesn't say, everybody's a neighbor. And in fact, how in the world would you only have one out of the three become neighbors if everybody's your neighbor? Then they're already neighbors. What do you mean, Jesus? Everybody's your neighbor. So it is ignoring the question. And I want you to notice uh, the answer isn't everybody. And Jesus agrees and says, yeah, go, go be like the guy who was the neighbor. I also want you to notice that the word gegonenai is from the word ginomai, which means to become. And it's, it's in the uh, perfective aspect here, so it's, it's more like a state of idea. But, but the idea is that something becomes something. Now, I want you to notice then, the guy becomes a neighbor to the guy, which means it's not inherent in his humanity. He's not automatically a neighbor because he's a human. It's not the brotherhood of man. We're all not neighbors to one another. That's not true. You have to actually become a neighbor by becoming a true covenant member. Now, I'm going to say sometimes neighbor can refer to the visible covenant community because we don't really know who really is a neighbor. I mean, we should be really going around judging everybody, making sure that you know they're a neighbor within the covenant community. Obviously, we can if they deny Jesus Christ and they don't have a confession. But I mean, within the covenant community, you're not to judge. And we'll look at a passage in James that talks about that a little bit and uses the word neighbor. Um, but I, I want you to notice here that, that he becomes a neighbor because you beca- you, there's also the passages that deal with how do you tell if you're a part of the invisible covenant community? I think this is one of those passages. In fact, the context of Luke, Luke is arguing in his gospel how you actually tell you belong to the invisible covenant community. And that's why you have, for instance, the the rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man and Lazarus are two people that claim to be in the covenant community, the visible covenant community. Now, that's not said because it's said that, yeah, there are two Jews, one rich, one poor. You pick that up from the passage. The the poor man's name is Lazarus, which is the Latin terminology for Eliezer. So he's a Jewish guy sitting at the gate of the rich man. The reason why we know the rich man is also a Jew in the covenant community is because he calls Abraham his father when he talks to him. And then when he says that, hey, let me go warn my brothers, Abraham says, no, they have the scriptures. And so it's very clear we're talking about people who would claim to be a part of the visible visible covenant community. And yet the rich man proves to not be in the invisible covenant community because he doesn't take care of the poor uh, member of the covenant community, which is what loving your neighbor is all about in the context as we just read in Leviticus, and then it's going to be in, throughout the New Testament. So Luke does this a lot. This is the context of Luke. Luke is arguing, and because he's arguing it to Theophilus, therefore you need to take care of the poor and marginalized Christians who are being persecuted. You're in government. Please help. Um, this is the idea in Luke. When Luke says blessed are the poor, he doesn't mean blessed are the poor like even if they're like pagan murderers. He's talking about blessed are the poor Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are a part of the covenant community, who are who believe in Yahweh, who trust in him. Right? So uh, it's very important to understand this. This is the context of Luke, and we're taught to read Luke generically out of the context of the of the gospel and ignoring what the actual parable says. Which one out of the three became a neighbor? And the answer is, uh, he said to him, the one who did mercy upon him. The one who had mercy upon him. 
Now, literally, it's the one who did mercy because mercy was an action or the actions that he did, not something that he felt. It was something that he did. That's what mercy actually is. It's that the chesed once again. Um, and Jesus said to him, go and you do likewise. In other words, you become the neighbor now in the covenant community. That's the idea. Well, if you have to become a neighbor, if the expert has to go away to become the neighbor, to really follow Yahweh, to become part of the real visible covenant community as an actual follower of Yahweh, showing that through how he treats other members of the covenant community, then again, everybody isn't your neighbor. That's bad exegesis. The Bible never says everyone is your neighbor. It never presents pagans as your neighbor. Not in this sense, not not in this sense where you have obligations that are covenant obligations, obligations to your brother and whatnot, which is the way it's used today. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, you might get Old Testament words that mean neighbor as in someone near you, meaning someone who lived by you. So it might be like, you know, the Egyptians lived near you or something. Because that's just a generic, unmarked meaning of the word, and the context is going to mold it to, to what it is. But that's, it's not used that way in the New Testament. And it's certainly not used that way in Leviticus, as we just saw. It's talking about your people. It's talking about your brother. And that's what the New Testament adopts. That's the proper definition of neighbor. Fellow covenant community member. And sometimes we're talking about the visible covenant community. And in fact, mostly we're talking about the visible covenant community. Because you don't know who's a part of the invisible and who's not you know, uh, with certainty. But like in this passage, I think Jesus is saying, here's, here's how you know you're actually a part of the invisible covenant community. And you're not just a part of the visible and, and mistaken like the rich man uh, who went to Hades. So uh, very important, neighbor does not mean everyone, according to the very parable but that people think says your neighbor is everyone or everyone in need or something of that nature. Because it's, it's not, he's not even talking about the guy who's in need. He's talking about which one became a neighbor to that guy. He's already assumed to be a part of the covenant community. Jesus is saying which one is actually a part of the covenant community. And shockingly, it's not the Levite who's the most spiritual. It's not the priest who's the most spiritual. It's actually the Samaritan who's seen as ethnically unclean. And yet that man's going to heaven and the other two are not. So that's what neighbor means. Now, let's look at some passages in the New Testament because uh, you might say, well, I could have I swore that neighbor is used to refer to people generically. And what I would argue to, to you is that you're actually, you've been programmed to read these passages generically when they're not generic. They're in the context of the covenant community. So in Romans chapter 12, verse four, for just as in one body, we have many members, talking about the church, and not all the members serve the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members who belong to one another. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift of prophecy, that individual must use it in proportion to his faith. If it is service, he must serve. If it is teaching, he must teach. What are they doing these, all, all these things to? Fellow members of the covenant community. If it's exhortation, he must exhort. If it is contributing, there's money. Is it to go to everywhere, any sort of program? No. Uh, he must do so with sincerity. If it is leadership, he must do so with diligence. If it is showing mercy, he must, uh, he must do so with cheerfulness. Verse 9, love must be without hypocrisy. So no faking among one another. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love showing eagerness in honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal, be enthusiastic in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints. Not everybody in the world, the needs of the saints, because you're taking care of your neighbor and that's what you're commanded to do in fulfilling the law. Pursue hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse. This is where people get into the idea that, oh, now he's switching to unbelievers. And it's like, no, this is within the covenant community. There are constantly people who are blessing or cursing one another. 
Constantly people quarreling. We're going to see this again in James when we look at it. But reality, you just read any book in the Bible and you've got this going on. Galatians will read. And it's the same thing. Quarreling, cursing one another, all of that sort of thing. Uh, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It's verse 16. I'm sorry, uh, bless those who persecute. That, that, that's where they get the idea that it's unbelievable. Persecute just means to bully someone. Uh, we get the idea that persecution means uh, I'm going to drag you, you know, to a cross and crucify you or burn you at the stake or stone you or whatever. Obviously, that's persecution too. But persecution, even as we see in Matthew, is just even slandering someone. It's bullying someone, slandering someone, uh, shunning someone based on your own criteria, not Christ's criteria, uh, because you don't like them or whatever. Like that's that's persecution in Matthew. So um, same thing here. By the way, this passage is drawn, I think, either from Matthew or I would argue that it's uh, used in Matthew because I think this is written first. Um, rejoice with those who rejoice. Notice then the contrast is don't, don't uh, curse those who persecute you. Bless them. Why? Because you're, you're never to curse a person who represents Christ. Uh, you're not to curse anyone who is a son of Abraham because you'll be cursed. You're not to curse people who are Israel. Remember, that's Paul's argument here is that we're Israel. Uh, and so you're not to curse Israel or you will be cursed. And so bless them instead. Notice verse 16, live in harmony with one another. So we're talking about the fellow covenant community. We're not talking about the world in general. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all men, all men referring to the covenant community. It, because I mean, what you're going to consider what's good among pagans who like think like human sacrifice is good? Of course not. Or sacrifices to false gods is good? No, of course not. It's talking about other Christians, that every, every man in the community, every person in the community agrees this is a, a good thing according to the Bible. Um, so do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people, again, in the covenant community. If so, uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people, meaning in the covenant community. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath, for it is written, I, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, a lot of people will interpret that as, well, see, you're, just, you're, you're condemning the world by being good to the world. Again, no. Um, it's talking about how you treat fellow covenant community members who have actually done evil toward you. And it's saying, don't take out vengeance on them. If they're to be judged for something, let God do that. You instead seek for their salvation. And so this, this by doing good to them, you're heaping burning coals on their head. This is the idea of repentance, the, the idea that you're throwing ashes on your head. But the burning coals shows that it's like a severe repentance. So you're actually causing them to repent like greatly because you're doing good and yet they've done evil. And so the Lord might be able to use that to actually bring their repentance about. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the world. Again, uh, it's, it's important to know this. I mean, I'm not saying, hey, you know, go be a jerk to the world. That's not the point of all this. The point of all this is that you're going to come down to decisions where you have to love and hate. As we talked about last week, you have to choose one over the other. And you are to choose your brothers, your fellow covenant members, your neighbors over the world. So if you have a finite amount of money, and you do, a finite amount of physical resources, and you do, you use them toward your brethren. You use them toward your neighbor. You don't throw them out to the world. And I don't care what relationships you have with the world, unless it's, you know, obviously we have governmental obligations. Paul's going to talk about that here, taxes. We have obligations familial with, in terms of taking care of parents and all that sort of thing, taking care of children and, and all of that. But my point is, is that... Um, when you're not dealing with those government responsibilities, you need to choose among the non-governmental responsibilities who you're going to support, who you're going to take care of. And it becomes important to then identify the neighbor correctly and what it means to love your neighbor. Now, Paul's going to caveat from him talking about don't take vengeance. We talked about this in Romans, so you can look up that sermon 
uh, as we went through it. But he, he caveats to talk about the civil law. The civil law is given to the governments of the nations. The nations carry the sword. Therefore, you, you obey those in government and whatnot. And so you don't need to take out vengeance yourself, especially on, on fellow believers. Then after that caveat, immediately back to the covenant community, because the whole thing really has been about the covenant community, 13.8, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor, that's the one another, you, you love one another. Who's he talking to? The, the, the church at Rome. He's not saying, hey, world, uh, love one another. He's saying, hey, church at Rome, love one another. Love your fellow Christians. And he's going to ask them for a contribution to those, in, those who are poor in Jerusalem at the end of the letter. He's not asking them for, like, you know, contribution for, like, all the poor in Jerusalem, but the church in Jerusalem. Because that's loving one another. That is fellow Christians. So we see then that one another is your neighbor, so owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Not some other law that's made up, the law, the Torah in the Old Testament. Now this is very important. If that's true, then everyone cannot be your neighbor. You want to know why? Because in the law, it tells you to kill Canaanites and take their stuff. Because you're going to love the Israelites who need to live there over the Canaanites who are wicked in God's judging. You don't preserve the lives of the Canaanites. You take their lives. And you don't, you don't bother to like, you know, give them their stuff. You take their stuff away. You drive them out of the land. So the Israelites, your brothers, who you're loving, can inherit the land. And God can be glorified. So you're loving the Lord your God. You're loving your neighbor. Now, if everybody's your neighbor, including the Canaanite, now we've got a problem. Because now you're not loving your neighbor. Unless you think killing your neighbor and taking his stuff is loving. I don't know. I mean, if we define things out of existence, and you're going to say, well, that's love too, then love means nothing, because love just means everything. I mean, if, if God loves everybody, including the people that he sends into an eternal hell and tortures in hell for eternity, if that's love, then nothing means love because everything means love. That's not the way the Bible defines love. We looked at that last week. There's a choice to be made. There's a love and a hate to go with it. And love is choosing one over the other, which is considered hatred. So verse 9, for the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and if there is any other commandment are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, if those in the covenant community are your neighbors only, then that, that makes sense. That's totally consistent. If everybody's your neighbor now, we've got a problem that makes no sense. Because the Israelites were not supposed to do good to everyone. They were actually to perform chaos on people who attacked them. They were to perform chaos on the Canaanites. They were to perform chaos on people who committed crimes and execute them. They were not to love those people. They were to choose the Israelites and the purity of the nation and the covenant um, commitment to God of those people over the criminal over the Canaanite, over the Edomite, over those who attack them, over the idolater. In the same way that they chose the true God, Yahweh, over Baal, they were to choose their people over the unbeliever, the pagan, the person who uh, divorced himself from Yahweh and his covenant community. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Who's he talking to? The church at Galatia, not the world in general. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Take care that you are not consumed by one another, fellow covenant community. 
James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly, so he's coming into church, he's a Christian, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, another Christian, but he's poor, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, brethren, the covenant community, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality in the covenant community, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So again, what's neighbor here? Well, the guy who's been made rich in faith that you're not actually loving because you're, you're treating him poorly because he's poor. You're making distinctions among yourselves. James 4. If you didn't quite get it there, here's James 4. What is the sort in verse 1? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. They're quarreling among themselves. Verse 11, do not speak against one another. Brethren, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor. Neighbor is your brother. It's synonymous. So again, Placeon in the New Testament is synonymous. It's talking about people in the covenant community. Very important to understand. Now, sometimes when Jesus is correcting them, for instance, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he he is going to use neighbor there because they're thinking neighbor means friend. Uh, even in the covenant community, an enemy means the guy I don't like in the covenant community or who has bullied me or persecuted me in the context of Matthew meaning slandered me. And so I don't, I don't have to love that guy. I, can, I just can love my little clique within the church and I don't have to love other Christians. Well, Matthew's going to argue and Jesus is arguing in the Sermon on the Mount, that's not true. You're to love everyone. God causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't say, well, that Christian's wicked, so I'm not going to give him these benefits of the covenant community. He does it for everybody. Um, he, he takes care of the world that way. It's a generic saying. People get from that generic saying that, said, oh, that means that you know we love the world because it's saying that God loves the world. It's like that's not the analogy. The analogy is simply that God causes generically uh, rain to fall on the righteous and to fall on the wicked. So you, within the covenant community, are to love one another, whether you're righteous and friends with people, or whether you view these people as wicked, having slandered you or done evil to you. Again, just like Romans 12, you do good to them, so you heap burning coals on their head and you're seeking their repentance, which is what Matthew is actually all about. Going to your brother, making amends, being forgiving, repenting of sin, all of that. Matthew 18, I mean, all all of that stuff. Um, forgiving your brother from your heart. That's why Matthew draws out the forgiveness clause in, this, in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, whereas Luke draws out a different lesson. And so it's all about reconnecting with your brother because the context of Matthew is that the Jews in the covenant community who have become Christians hate the Gentiles who have become Christians. And because of that, they don't want to have anything to do with them. They're separating from them. And any Jews who are obeying Jesus and actually hanging out with Gentiles are now being persecuted by their fellow Jewish Christians. And they're being cut off and shunned. They're being slandered. 
And so the idea is, well, what do you do then? If these people are doing this, then we should get them. No, that's going to further the rivalry. Instead, what you should do is do good to them and bless them and don't curse them and, and seek to reconcile with them. And Matthew, of course, is trying to correct their theology so that they don't, uh, they don't separate based on ethnicity and they don't have these hatreds toward one another based on race and ethnicity because that is wicked and it's counter to the gospel of Christ. So we bring these passages up because ultimately these are the passages that talk about neighbor uh, with, with Placeon. This is, this, is, um, this is the theology of the neighbor. And yet where in any of these passages do you see anything of a generic humanity being all, just, just inherently your neighbor because we're all like one creation together, one humanity? Our commonality is, yeah, we're all created uh, as human beings. That's where it ends. Because then there's two humanities, as we looked at before. There's two seeds. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Uh, seed of the woman is the image of God. Seed of the serpent is never called the image of God. We looked at that in past, uh, in past lessons. And so there's two humanities. John in 1 John will bring these out. Read John. He's all talking about love, but it's love of the brethren. And it's not being a part of those who are the children of the devil. He doesn't talk about one big happy humanity who everybody's your neighbor. I mean, I heard a prominent preacher who most of you would know and normally think is great. And I think he's normally really good uh, in, in all sorts of things. I have some disagreements, obviously, but I won't name his name. But he literally made the statement that you can see Christ in everyone, including unbelievers. My friends, no, no. The reason why the judgment seat of Christ is sheep and goats, people, all people claiming to say, you know, they all say, Lord, Lord, but they're coming to Jesus on that day and uh, half of them took care of his people, the least of these brothers of mine, they took care of him then and they enter into life. But the other half, the goats, did not take care of these brothers of mine. And therefore, they didn't take care of him. And they, he tells them to depart into everlasting uh, punishment. The reason why that is, and it's not, hey, but uh, you didn't take care of general humanity who was poor. Uh, you didn't take care of general you know, social justice issues. Uh, you didn't g generically just apply all this humanity and therefore you, you, you're going to go off to eternal punishment. No, it's specifically how you treat your brothers, which is why John in 1 John says, how can you, if you see your brother in need, not actually take care of him? How can you say you have the love of God in you? The love of God is manifest in your love for your brother, your love for your neighbor, your fellow covenant community member, not your love of generic humanity. And that's why I said last week that the, the phrase is not accidentally taken out of context and cut short when people say they will know we are Christians by our love. That's not what Jesus said. He said that you'll, they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So you fulfilling the love of God command is to obey God, listen to the law and all those things that pertain to God. And you obeying the love of neighbor command means that you love your fellow covenant community member and that's it, that's, you're done. You fulfilled the law because God doesn't require you to love the Edomite. God doesn't love you to require you to, to love the Canaanite. He doesn't require you to love the person who hates his guts and is gonna perish. Now granted, we're not in the same position as God because we don't know who is elect among the unbelievers. So we are searching for them. But as I said last week, even in the searching for them, you're choosing to love your neighbor or who will be your neighbor, who has been eternally chosen by God to be your neighbor by his election over the unbeliever, who you are further damning by giving them more truth. You are choosing to love the neighbor by hating the, the non-elect. So very important to understand that the job of the Christian and the goal of the Christian is to love God with everything he's got and to love his fellow, fellow covenant community members, Christians, 
to love God and to love his people, to love God and to love his elect. And that's it. And, and everything else, and again, it's, we're not talking about emotions and therefore you should go out and be bitter and hateful toward people that you think are going to remain unbelievers. For one thing, again, you don't know who are going to remain unbelievers. You have no idea what God's going to do. You don't know God's secret will. So your, your job is try to save. That's your job. You can pronounce judgments, but it's, even the judgments are a means of you trying to communicate God's judgment upon them and therefore maybe they'll repent and be saved. So your job is go save people. That's your, that's your job because we don't know who the elect are. However, our commitments in terms of taking care of people, how we interact, like all of that stuff is not to even the elect who have not believed. It's to the neighbor, which means those who have already professed faith in Jesus Christ, those part of the visible covenant community, and then you know also communicating those passages that, that relate the neighbor as those who are part of the invisible, how you know you're actually a neighbor. But it's very important that I then don't say, well, uh, since I don't know who's going to be saved among the, the pagans, then I can ju- I, my obligation is the same toward them because you know maybe I'm going to hit someone who will be a Christian one day. No, you have no obligation. As Ephesians says, they are currently, before they believe in Jesus Christ, cut off from God. They're without God in the world, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they don't partake in our blessings and our physical resources. It doesn't belong to them. And therefore, Jesus says, do not throw your pearls, your wealth, before dogs and swine. Why? Because Well, dogs and swine is terminology for unbelievers, pagans. That's just typical Jewish terminology in viewing them as unclean animals. And so that idea is that we don't then support the religions of Satan while even the elect are speaking the religions of Satan because they're cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. We have an obligation to the neighbor, the believers in the covenant community. And when we steal from them to give to the world because we have this generic idea that we should support everyone who's poor and we should support everyone who's outcast. And we should all look out for everyone who's marginalized, even though that that person is speaking religions that are of the devil and and murdering people with their ideologies, is something the Enlightenment absolutely loves. Good job. It's brainwashed you well. The devil has you actually um, supporting his religion, his antichrist religion that replaces the necessity of Jesus Christ and Orthodox Christianity with a religion that really doesn't need Jesus. He's good as an example, but you really don't need him in the end because, again, we're a general humanity. We're generally connected to God in some way, like the image. We're generally connected to one another as neighbors, brothers, whatever you want to call it. doesn't matter. And, uh, and we generally have some sort of connection to God apart from Christ. We don't need Jesus for that connection. So maybe we're all Okay. And maybe all these religions are just different ways of us expressing our connection to God and all that sort of thing. Again, I realize not all Christians believe all of this. I'm just saying that the religion of the Enlightenment needs these ideas to feed into the others. And you're on a spectrum. There's a reason why you have conservative, conservative colleges and conservative seminaries and conservative churches um, go from you know, orthodox or somewhat orthodox Christianity, but holding to the image of God idea, holding to the everybody's your neighbor idea, and slowly, progressively, because they think their commitments and obligations are to everyone, slowly end up over here into enlightenment religion that people call anything from liberalism to progressivism to, uh, I forget the, the numerous names for it, but, but essentially that enlightenment inclusivism and egalitarianism of all humanity. And therefore, everybody is the same. Uh, there's, there's not two humanities, and there's no need for Christ to get from one to the other. Because you're already in the one that there is. Uh, this is evil, and we need to stop feeding into it because we just think that the image of God in everybody is such a nice idea. And, then, and everybody's your neighbor, and to love everybody. I mean, what could be so wrong about that? I mean, it just seems so nice. Well, it's murdering people. We need to actually stop. Uh, we need to communicate, no, you have no part in God and you have no part in, among his people and you have no part for their, in terms of inheriting their stuff and their wealth. 
It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. And nothing that belongs to Christ belongs to you unless you're in Christ. And then if you're in Christ, well, everything. We have all things in common then. And we'll distribute in a wise manner to one another. But, but we have no obligations there because everyone to, to the pagan, because the pagan is not our neighbor. He's not an image of God. We're not called to love him in the same way that we're called to love others. In fact, we're called to hate him when a choice needs to be made to love our brethren over him. And because it is a zero-sum game, your money, your finances, your physical resources, you are, in fact, taking away from your brother to give to the pagan. So you're actually choosing to not love your neighbor, to hate your neighbor in order to love the enemy of God. Not just your enemy in the covenant community like Matthew's talking about, but the actual enemy of God, actually the devil and his children and his religion and his chaos you're choosing to support that and push into that because it makes you feel good because, you know, you, you, you just view that person as a general human that you need to take care of. Now, having said all that, let me just end by saying this. God does even support the nations and consider and call the governments to take care of their own people. And a people in different nations, pagans are to take care of one another. Well, why? Why does God want to support these pagans? Well, ultimately because he's getting his elect from them, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the point is that he gets his elect. And so he's going to maybe, you know, have a government put a well in a village uh, because he wants the elect to sustain, have their lives sustained. He wants the elect to be born, all of that. And so the pagans partake in that and they benefit from that. But ultimately it's for his elect because he's loving them. But the church isn't to do that. Christians aren't to do that. Christians, the only, they're, they're partaking in government is through taxes. They do that. The government then decides to take care of the poor as they should. So you, you constantly hear this idea that, well, churches should take care of the poor like they used to back in the good old days of whatever, the 19th and 20th century or, or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, no, they're not. That's unbiblical. The church is not to take care of the generic poor. They're to take care of their own poor. Uh, and so that's why they're to take care of their own priests, their elders. They're to take care of their own widows. They're to take care of their own orphans. They're to take care of those who, who can't work or whatever. They actually impoverished because they have a disability or something. They're to take care of their own people because they're a holy nation separated from the other nations. And therefore their resources, as long as government has not grabbed them uh, through taxes or whatnot, their resources go to that nation, Christ's nation, where he's king over that nation and they go to his members and not to other people outside. And those are that, that kingdom is a kingdom of neighbors. And therefore you, to, you are to love Christ, love God with everything you've got by listening to doing everything the scripture says, believing everything that he says, all of his promises, who he is, all of that. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself, fulfilling the law. Fulfilling the law, which has to do with how you treat your fellow covenant members. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. I know this is a hard lesson. I'm sure people will have a really strong reaction to it uh, because traditions are strong. And this is one of the strongest in our culture. It has been ingrained into us through education, through movies, through parents, through churches, everywhere. Over and over again, passages taken out of context, parables remembered incorrectly, all sorts of propaganda from hundreds of years ago uh, at the beginning of the Enlightenment on. And even, I mean, this stretches for, past even to uh, the, the father's misunderstanding passages, but never has it been so deadly as it has now been used in the Enlightenment to cover for the theology of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Now it works a divisive, wicked, subversive uh, religion to undercut true Christianity and to undercut the gospel and the necessity of Jesus Christ, to undercut the fact that humanity is in a serious, serious condition that will lead it to absolute damnation if, in fact, it is not going to repent and come to Jesus and be placed from the humanity in Adam into the humanity in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, Lord, that in the knowledge of this, that you will push your people to study further, that they'll look into these passages, that they'll really ask these questions, 
and understand that they have been duped by a false religion that pretends to be Christianity, which in fact it is not at all. And I pray that in that quest, as they find the truth, they will truly love you and love your people and thereby glorifying you in all that they do. And that's why we pray today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.